All right, if you would turn with me to page 130 in those brown Bibles that are there before you, we'd like to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. And what Troy mentioned to me this morning is that this is really the message. Um, he doesn't really want to get in the way of as profound as this text is. So if you'll read it along with me, page 130, Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll start there. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you. And so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of our fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all your strength, these commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk alone along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them on, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath to you for, to your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our very eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, 
so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as, in the, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Thanks, Steve. Good morning, everyone. My name is Troy, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to uh, one of our gatherings here on Sunday. Uh, we are taking an offering, as uh, Steve mentioned earlier. If you're visiting with us, you can throw a Connect card in there. Otherwise, uh, that's really intended for our family of faith. Um, we are starting a, a very brief series. We're going to do this in two weeks. The Keys to Life. This morning, we're starting that. Uh, it was this last year, there was a, an organization, a startup company here in the U.S., called Veris Benchmarks that came up with uh, a test, a pre-employment test to help gauge the moral fiber of prospective employees. So they just came out with this this last year. And so what Veris Benchmarks did was they they wanted to help businesses be successful by being able to to gauge when you would hire an employee, if you have them take this test, you'll be able to figure out how moral they are. Okay, which is important because they want to be successful and they want to have good employees who will represent well the reputation and the image of any company. Now, as you can imagine, when I found out about this, I wanted to take the test, right? Because you, I mean, you want to take the test too, because you want to find out how moral you are, right? So I wanted to take the test because I wanted to find, like, I thought I better have a really high moral response here to this. And for your information, like it turned out okay. The score score was good. I am in the trust zone. There's a trust zone, so I'm in the trust zone. I appreciate it. It wasn't as high, actually. My number score wasn't as high as I thought it was. So I wanted to like retake it because I was wondering about my moral fiber. But anyway, some of you are going to go home now and make sure you take that to find out. But there's a test for that now. See, companies spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to be successful. Whether that's you know, making sure they have a solid vision statement, having you know uh, good leadership, having em- employees that are hardworking, and then you're know, thinking back, thinking through all that we've seen businesses go through with you know the Lehman Brothers and Freddie Mac and and Enron and all that to have employees who are also having moral standards are important, and I think you know not just on a business level but personally as well, we are constantly trying to figure out how we can be successful, right? We're constantly trying to figure out how do we make sure we get it right? That when we, that we, we come to the end, we look back on our life and we say, you know what, I think I, I think I was able to figure out and do it right. But the challenge is, is, you know, what exactly are the keys to success and how do we determine what they are? Because we have a lot of different voices speaking into that in the world. You know, is success defined as us living the American dream? Finding our soulmate, having children that, that are gifted and talented, of course, r- rising up the, the corporate ladder or the, the employment ladder, whatever that looks like, you know, going on amazing vacations around the world, posting it on Facebook, and then, like, making sure that you've got a legacy to live, uh, snowbird as you're able, and then uh, leave money and a legacy to the next generation. And you've done all those? you checked those boxes? Are you successful? That's the question that we have to ask. And yet, I think we'd all admit, as we are living, we look at those things and we say, are, they, are those things very often seemingly unattainable? Or let's say that we say, you know what, maybe I've got one element of that, we're nailing that one element, but the rest of it seems to be, the balls are dropping all over the place. 
Or maybe we have reached a level of success as we define it, and then we get there, and we look around like, well, this, this, I, I'm not as happy as I thought I would be. I'm still discontent. Here's the thing. God looks at success differently than we do. It is possible to be considered successful in the eyes of the world as defined, and yet completely miss the mark in God's eyes. So over the next two weeks, we're going to actually take a look at what Scripture describes as the key to life. And actually, I'll give you the, the front end of it. God himself is the key to life. But with, our, with respect to our interactions with God, the two keys we're going to look at are loving God and fearing God. Loving God and fearing God. Now, why are these two keys so critical? They're critical because what they do is loving God and fearing God draw us to worship God. And that, family, is what we were made for. That's what we were made for, is to worship God. This morning, I I wore a watch. You would typically not see me wear a watch because I don't like wearing them. Uh, My wife bought this for me a long time ago. You did, right? This was, you bought it? Okay. So um, it's been in the drawer for a long time. And I don't like wearing stuff, so I don't usually wear it, but I wore it this morning. Now, if, if you were to gauge, how, how would you gauge whether or not this watch is successful? Whether or not it tells time, correct? It is 11.40, and it has been all morning, okay? Because I didn't put batteries in this thing for years, okay? So, so this watch technically is not successful because it's not telling time. Now, you might say, well, it's also meant to look nice and maybe be an accessory, and that's fine, I suppose. But that's not the primary purpose. You, you'd ask the watchmaker, and the watchmaker would say, well, I hope it would tell time. That's what it's made for. In the same way, we were made to worship God. And so for us to be successful... To help us worship God, there's a couple keys. One is to love God and one is to fear God. Now, I think in general as a culture, that first one we're cool with. Loving God, we're fine with that. Fearing God is harder. We don't like that one. And that's totally fine with me because I don't have to talk about that. Mike's got to do that next week. (laughs) So, uh, no, but in reality, I do want to talk about just briefly because there is a significant interconnection between the two of them. You kind of can't have one without the other. A theologian, Don Carson, makes this comment. I want to read it to you. He says, fearing God without loving him will dissolve into terror and therefore into taboos, magic, incantations, and rites. Loving God without obeying him will dissolve into sentimentalism. And I, I see this. I see this. Some of you may be here or you know people in your life who actually, they may not say it out loud, but they live like they fear God. They look like they fear God probably because of things that have happened in the past, things that have been done, uh, or, or, or things that they've done. And so what they want to do is they want to maybe make sure that they just don't ever make God mad. So they've got to you know, walk the walk, they've got to check the checks on the boxes, if you would. They don't have a problem fearing God, but they don't really love God. It's not a relationship thing, it's rituals. On the other hand, some people love talking about loving God, like God's love and God's loving and it's wonderful But there's no real obedience with their life. It's just kind of sentimentalism. And so, like like a Hallmark card, okay? I don't know about you, but I really struggle. My favorite cards are blank cards. Because nowadays, I read these cards, and I'm just like, are you kidding me? Who wrote this? So I found a couple of them. Um, uh, I've never been the same since the day I first met you. Thank you for coming into my life. Thank you for all the happiness you bring to my world. I mean, 
if this is true, if you live in a relationship where this is legitimately true and you can say these words and there's a life and a relationship that's lived that out and there's real, those are real words, that's great. If not, you're like, just threw up in my mouth a little bit. Okay? Here's another one. Here's a, a woman's anniversary card to uh, her husband. And it says a bunch of stuff on the front that makes me sort of laugh. But in the inside it says, happy anniversary to the one who can still thrill me just by reaching for my hand. Yeah. Now, if you have a marriage, if you have a marriage where, like, legitimately speaking, your husband loves you so much and he demonstrates that and lives it out in such a way that when he reaches for your hand, like, ooh, thrills. Like, praise the Lord for that. That's amazing. But in general, if, you were, if, if you're not loving your wife and you give her this card, she's like, no, oh, whatever. It's sentimentalism. Okay, so we have to be careful. We talk about loving God. It's not just a sentiment. Okay, we're going to cover that. We're going to come back to that in just a minute here. So the keys here are loving God and fearing God. And we're going to start with loving God. And so you're already open to Deuteronomy chapter 6, I hope. And if you are, if you aren't, grab it again and open to page 130. We're going to go back and look at a little bit. We're not going to reread it. Steve read the whole chapter. So I'm just going to reference a few verses as we go through it. What we're going to see is this. God commands us to love him, number one. Number two... We love him as we remember him. That's one of the key ways for us to loving him as we remember him. But number three, we forget him. Okay? So that's kind of how this text plays out. So, so to get you caught up in where we are at in Deuteronomy, here's what happened. There was, no, there was no nation of Israel at all. There was no people called the Hebrew people. And God said to one guy named Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And, and he didn't even have any kids. And he started to have, he had a, he had a son. And all of a sudden, he had sons who had sons. And this grew, this family grew into a nation, the Israelite people. If you follow through in Genesis, you'll find eventually they end up in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And they are under the slave masters in Egypt, harsh, cruel slavery for a long time. They're crying out to God. And eventually God speaks to Moses through a burning bush and says, uh, you need to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And without really doing much of anything, the people, they experience plagues like that God saves them and rescues them out of the land of Egypt without really having to do anything. And they come out and they're trapped against the Red Sea. The Pharaoh's army is going to catch up with them and kill them. God parts the seas. They walk through. They are saved. They then come to the foot of Mount Sinai where God develops. He says, hey, you're my people. I'm your God. Here's a bunch of decrees that this is how I want you to live. And they eventually are out in the desert and they say, you know what, we don't like it here. We actually want to go back to Egypt. We'd rather be in slavery than be here. And God's like, are you kidding me? After all that I've done? So he has them wander around for 40 years, heading towards, but just wandering around, heading towards a promised land that he had promised them. And now they're on the brink of the promised land in Deuteronomy. And Moses, who is the leader of the people, he is not going to enter into the promised land, but he's on the cusp of it. And this is his kind of farewell speech. That's what you find in Deuteronomy. Okay, in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five, we find what is, if not the most famous declaration in all the Hebrew scriptures, it is one of them. It is called the Shema. And I'll reread it for you. It is chapter six, verse four and five. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is called the Shema because it begins like that. It goes Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohenu Adonai Echad. Va'achavata et Adonai Elohecha. Uvakol Levavaka. 
Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. It's, it's, it's one of the most, if not the most, significant declarations in all of Hebrew Scripture. Love God. Now, the fact that the word love here can be commanded shows us that it is not an emotion. Can you command somebody to love someone in an emotive sense? Can you do that? Has that have you ever tried that? It doesn't work. I try, to, I try to command my kids to just say I'm sorry to one another. You know how that works? Sorry. You know, the one sibling screaming their face off, the other one's like, what? Sorry. You can tell it's just deep in their hearts. It is an emotion they're experiencing. No, you can't command someone to emote which means that this is an action. What he's commanding here, this love is an action that is expressed. Otherwise, we're back to sen- sentimentalism. And so it is, number one, love God. That's the command here. But let, let, let's be honest, family. This is a tall order, is it not? To love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. That's, that's hard, isn't it? Right? Am I tracking with you guys? Is that hard? Okay, it's hard. It's hard. Like, come on, God, can you, like, say don't murder. I got, like, okay, I can do that. God, say don't steal stuff. I can, I can think I, I can do that. God, say honor my mom and dad. I can give that a college try. But, but, like, love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, that is hard. I don't even know if I love anybody like that. I don't look at my, like myself. I don't love myself like that. But this is the marker. And this is what we're to be striving for. And the reason why we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength is because he is the only one that is worthy of our love. He's the only one worthy of our love. And it's what we were made for. It's to love and worship him. So loving God comes by remembering him. Number two, loving God comes by remembering him. We have to remember who God is and what he's done throughout history. I, I, I'll tell you, a day-to-day basis, I'm not always the best at loving my wife, Stephanie. I'm not always the best at it. When I fail at it, what I'm typically doing is I'm forgetting the last 16 years of our relationship and all that she has done to sacrifice. Like, if I made a list, it would be, it would be, inc- it would be intense. I'll be honest, I don't always love my mom the way that I should. I really don't. And, and one of the reasons that I think I don't is because I, don't, I, I, always, I sometimes forget that she raised me from zero to six by herself, that she sacrificed a ton of things to, to provide for me, like that she has consistently always done everything that she could to sacrifice for me. I forget that. And therefore, when I forget, I don't love her as I should. If you look at verses 6 through 9, Moses says, keep these words on your heart. Don't forget. He's like, keep these words in your heart. Impress them on your children. And then he kind of gives this list. He says, hey, when you're walking around, when you're sitting down, when you're lying down, doesn't matter. Whatever position, posture you're in, like think about these things, talk about these things all the time. When you're driving, if you need to put a little marker on your finger, don't forget. If you need to set a reminder in your phone and put it in there, he's like, don't forget these things impress them upon your children. This is um, partially the reason why I've been trying to pray that that this statement over my children since they were born. Don't forget. Verse 12 says, "Be careful, you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery." He said, like, "Don't forget. Don't forget that like you as a people literally walked out of Egypt and you plundered the Egyptians. You plundered them by doing nothing." They just gave you all their stuff, and you walked out and left. 
Don't forget that. I'm taking you someplace, this land. Now, verse 20 through 25 says this. When your kids ask you what's up with all these rules, have you ever, I mean, you, have you ever asked that? Like, what's the deal with all these rules, God? Why all the rules? He says, tell them because we were slaves, but God freed us. Don't forget. Don't forget. And can you imagine how difficult that would be if, think about this, the next generation, the children who were not born in Egypt would have no idea because it's not like they forgot what slavery was like. They just never were enslaved. Just one generation, one generation later. Now, so think about each consecutive generation, how much more difficult it would be to remember. That's why when we sit here today, we're like, that is so long ago. Like, what is that? How is it even relevant? Most of us in the room have no idea about anything about World War II. Some of you don't know anything about 9-11. You don't remember it because you weren't there. Some of you have people in your life who are alive yet who lived through the Great Depression, and you've never been able to figure out why, but they save pocket lint. And you're like, I don't know why they save pocket lint. Well, they do because they lived through the Great Depression. They would collect air if they could. Because they live through that. They don't forget. But we forget because we were like, what is that? What's that like? The next generation, like the next generation, here's one of my concerns. We'll have to sit down with our children and we'll have to say, oh, these things that we used to have called conversation. (laughs) They don't know what that is. Sorry. In spite of the warnings in verse 12, to not forget, this is exactly what we do, we forget. And we don't love God with all of our heart or soul and our strength because we don't remember who he is and what he's done. That's why, we, that's why we don't love God. We usually forget God. And last week when I was going through this and studying the first 10 chapters of Deuteronomy, I was trying to look at it, and what popped out to me was there was, Moses gives three causes, I think, he gives three causes as to why people forget. And I almost wondered, I'm just going to say that maybe they coincide with loving God with all of our heart, our soul, and our strength. These three causes. Okay, so I want to show you the first one. The first one is in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. It's in this next slide. This is what Moses said. He says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought, out, brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. So here's the thing. It is hard to love God with all of our hearts when we are in love with ourselves and our own awesomeness. When we are numerous or when we are popular, we can easily start to believe that we're awesome, right? Like when we start to think we're awesome, we start to fall in love with ourselves. In, in chapter 7, Moses says, this is not about how big you are, how numerous you are, how popular you are, you, how awesome you are. God didn't love you because you were the most numerous. There was, you were a nobody. Abraham was a wandering nomadic dude who didn't have any kids. He, there was no numbers. I think one of our biggest barriers to loving God is, is that we love ourselves so much. In our own awesomeness. Why, why would we need God's love when we're popular? Why would we need God's affirmation when other people are affirming us? When we're in the majority. 
when we have strength in numbers, numbers are so important to us. I recently was sitting down with David Sizdak and I were talking through just kind of um, the situation that um, we're processing through is the numbers associated with our Torch and Ignite Ministries. Uh, they're significant and they're growing. And it's really easy for us to kind of go, wow, look at all the kids who are engaged in the Torch and Ignite middle school and high school ministries. They're, most of them aren't here this morning because they're all out at a retreat at Camp Iwana right now. And there's a bunch of them. And so very quickly and very easily what we could do is say, well, look at that. Look at the numbers. But numbers have nothing to do with success. God chose one man. And so we said, hey, when people ask us about Torture Ignite, what we need to respond is the same way they respond in Kettlebrook in general. We say, we say, well, how are the numbers? We say, one at a time. One at a time. Because God cares about one person at a time. Perhaps we struggle to love God with all of our heart because we're consumed with love for ourselves. This is the first way I think we can forget God. The second way we can forget God is because uh, it comes in chapter 8. We find these words. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever thought this? Have you ever thought, my power, my strength, my hard work is why I am successful? Be honest. See, it's, it's hard, family, to love God with all of our strength when we're busy loving our own strength. Have you ever said that of yourself? It's, it's my hard work, my power, my strength that has produced this success, that have produced the relationships that I have, that have produced the friends I have, the lifestyle I have, the security I have, the, the finances that I have, the adoration that I get. I'm not against hard work. I'm just saying it's hard to love God's strength when you're loving your own strength. Now, one indicator that you may love your own strength and it might get in the way of loving God is your opinion about others who don't work as hard as you. So if you find yourself regularly saying this, oh man, look at how lazy that person is. Okay, if you find yourself saying that regularly, this may be getting in the way of you loving God. What do they do all day? My goodness, so lazy. Another one that might be an indicator this could get in the way for you is if you are extremely competitive if you are extremely competitive, and I'm not saying just you, if anyone that you know, because I am competitive too, so this speaks to me, but if you're competitive, it may be an indicator that this gets in the way because you want to win, right? And how do you win? By being the strongest, the fastest, the best, the work, whoever works the hardest, right? That's how you win. This could be an indicator of not Loving God and this getting in the way. The third way, the last way here. Comes in chapter 9. So we got 7, 8, and 9. Moses lays these things out. Here's what he says. He says, it is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the land, but on account of the weakness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then, if you didn't get it from the first sentence, that it is not because of your righteousness the Lord God's giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. A stiff-necked. 
It is hard to love God family with our souls when we're busy loving our own righteousness. Moses is like, hey, if you think that God's giving you this land because you somehow passed the various benchmark test, eh, you failed it. You, none of you are in the trust zone. God wouldn't hire any of you. It's not about your moral fiber. You, you're not moral. You're not righteous. It's hard to love God, though, with our souls, and we're busy loving our own righteousness. We're, oh, I'm, God, I'm a good person. I don't kill anybody. And we believe that we're good in our souls. At least I'm not like per, that person over there. Now, one indicator you might struggle to love God with all your soul due to your own righteousness is that you find yourself regularly comparing yourself to others. And what you do is you want to find the people that aren't as good as you, and then you want to talk about them. Like, man, can you believe what that person did? Because that makes you feel more righteous. Or if someone else starts talking about someone that you see as like better than you, you're like, let's change the subject, shall we? Or you come up with an excuse as to why that must be the case. Because um, this is a problem for you. Another indicator is you can't handle criticism. If you can't handle criticism, it's because you get defensive right away. And the reason you get defensive is because if someone comes at you, you have to be right, which comes, it's where righteousness comes from. You have to be right. And when you're not right, it means you're not as righteous as you thought you were, and you hate that. So one of the ways that we can apply this ancient text to our lives is this. Ask yourself this question, which of these three things is the biggest barrier to you loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength? Is it your, is your loving your own awesomeness? Is it you loving your own strength? Is it loving your own righteousness? Because if you're struggling to love God, it might be one of these reasons. And, and, and if, if, if so, if you're able to identify, at least if we can identify, we can repent and say, Lord, I don't want to be like that anymore. Can you help me? I don't want to be like that anymore. It's a great step towards redirecting our love towards him. Now, is it going to be easy to redirect our love towards God? No, it is not. Why? Because we are stiff necked people. Moses said it to the people back then, and this is the same is true still today. We are stiff-necked. Now, I was thinking about this this week, and I was like, why does Moses use the term stiff-necked? Who uses that term besides the chiropractor? Have you ever said stiff-necked? I've never used that one time in my life except now because Moses said it. You know, Moses could have used all kinds of different words. He could have said, you are a selfish people. You're an unloving people. He used, he used stiff-necked. The Hebrew words there literally mean hard back of the neck. Yeah, uh-oh. So I had to get one of these to make the illustration. Now, if you put this on tight enough, my head will turn purple. Okay? So I'm not sure exactly why Moses chose to use the words stiff-necked. But I want to give you a couple of uh, maybe, I'll just, let me take a venture a guess as to why he did. I think there's at least two reasons why Moses said, hey, you're stiff-necked people. The first one is, stiff-necked people have a hard time looking back. That's not easy, is it? Stiff-necked people have a hard time looking back. If we're to remember God, who He is and what He has done, we have to look back. We have to remember that stiff-necked people don't, because we can't. It's so hard. Are you stiff-necked? 
Do you have a hard time looking back and remembering who God is and what he has done? The second reason why I think he maybe uses stiff-necked is because there's something else that's hard for stiff-necked people to do, and it is to do this. Look down. To bow our head down. It's hard for a stiff-necked person to do that. If we're made to worship, if we're made to bow before God and worship, and we're stiff-necked, we don't look back because it's really hard, and we don't look down and bow down because we can't do it. Family, God calls us not to be stiff-necked people, but to be people who can look back at who he is and what he has done in our life and throughout history and to look down, bow our head down and submit our lives to him. And when we're able to do that, we begin on the path as we remember to love God with all of our heart, soul and strength. Now, we may not do that perfectly, but we're going to hopefully do it increasingly so. You see, this narrative that we read is not just for Moses' generation. His plans were not just for those in slavery. His plan is global. None of us can remotely identify with what it would be like to be in slavery in Egypt, but every one of us here can identify with being enslaved by something in our lives. It may be those things that we are striving for, for success. We're enslaved by the next promotion. We're enslaved by the next success. We're enslaved by the next relationship. We're enslaved by having to have the next affirmation. We're enslaved to our own self-righteousness. And so we can identify with his slavery. And so I think Moses concludes his text wisely where he says this. He says, and if we're careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Now, let me ask you this. For those of you who know the scriptures, do the people of Israel ever obey the laws and commands that God has given Okay, that's a question I really want you to answer to pretend like you are still with me. Did that lose you? Did that lose you? Did God's people ever obey the commands perfectly? Okay, not at all, not even close. Do we, do we obey God's commands perfectly? No, thank you. Otherwise, that was going to blow my closer. (laughs) Many years after Moses... But from the line of Abraham, one walked onto the scene. His name was Jesus. And he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear until everything is accomplished. Now, why did Jesus say that? He said that because he is the one who accomplished it. He said it because he is the only one capable of doing it. He reiterates, this is the greatest command. And why does he reiterate it? Because he's the only one that can fulfill it. He's the only one that can obey it. He's the only one. And therefore, when it says, Moses says, and that when you obey all this law, that will be our righteousness. Why? Because Jesus is the one who obeys it and he is our righteousness, and he alone. Jesus Christ is how we love. 
It's, we love because we have been first love. It's only because of Christ that we can actually love God at all. He gives us his spirit to love God the Father back. Jesus Christ, who is not stiff-necked, because he was able to look back and see that everything the Father has done has been pointing to him so he could point back and glorify the Father. Jesus Christ, who was able to look down and submit himself, so much so that he died, hung his head on a cross, so that when we cannot look back or look down, that he has done it on our behalf, so that we can love God and worship him through Christ Jesus. And when we do that, we're doing what we're made to do, and we are successful. This is the key. This is the key. May we be people who love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength, which is only possible through Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the plan that you have been unfolding um, all throughout your word, the plan to make a nation, to bless all nations through Abraham, but eventually through his offspring, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law, the only one who ever did it perfectly. Father, I ask that you would help us. We, we confess and we need to repent that we forget you, Father. We forget you every single day like we walk away from the mirror and forget our own face. We forget you. We forget what you've done yesterday. We repent of that. We confess that. We forget what you did last week, what you did last month, last year, ten years ago. We forget. And we repent, Father. Help us to look back and remember. And when we look back and remember, we're going to be forced to, out of love, for you, love you, to, to worship you. Father, if there's anyone here today who, who has not ever looked back to see what you've done or ever, has not ever bowed their head to worship you, I ask that by your spirit you would move them, that they would see this is what they're made for, is to worship you. With all their heart, with all their soul and all their strength, it's the only, it's the only thing that they were made for and it's, you're the only one worthy of it. We lift these things to you, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'd like to encourage you to do, we're going to sing a couple songs. Uh, what I'd like to encourage you to do is in your bulletin, there's a space for notes. And I'd like you to, to encourage you to, to take a practical application here. I'd like you to maybe in the ne- during the next song or two or, or after the gathering to maybe write down one thing that you'd want to remember about who God is and what God has done. To look back and remember what God has done in your life. One thing. Can you remember one thing? And my encouragement then for you would be to share that with one person. We have a space to do that after the gathering. Find someone and say, here's one thing that God has done. So we can remember together. And as we remember, we're going to love. Because of who he is and what he's done.